Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week an interview with Ben Lorber, and let's just get right to it. All right, everybody, this is me with uh, Ben Lorber. Uh, ben, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Craig. Uh, so I'm a researcher at Political Research Associates. We're a think tank that monitors right-wing movements and trains a, a progressive social movements on how to combat them. Uh, and my focus at PRA uh, is on white nationalism and anti-Semitism. Yeah, so that's why we wanted to talk today. Uh, ben, I wanted to ask you a lot about the sort of state of anti-Semitism and what it seems to me to be a resurgence, a recent resurgence in anti-Semitism being openly expressed in parts of the right wing that I would have previously considered to be more mainstream, like, you know, as opposed to parts of the right wing where I would expect people to be extremely openly, you know, and sort of like carefreely anti-Semitic. Uh, can you give some context for this apparent recent resurgence or, or do you think that that's not the right narrative we should be applying? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that is definitely the right narrative. You know, I think it's complicated sometimes to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism because the various ways that we have to track it statistically aren't great. You know, the FBI's hate crime statistics are flawed for a number of reasons, and groups like the ADL, which you know track anti-Semitic incidents, you know, often lump together a, a lot of. I, you know, the different phenomena under the umbrella of anti-Semitism, including some criticism of Israel that many mm -hmm. progressives like myself will not consider anti-Semitic. But the bottom line is, yes, there is a resurgence of anti-Semitism. And, you know, as you say, um, it is creeping into mainstream right-wing discourse. Um, and I think the long context for this is, or the longish context is, you know, the rise of the Donald Trump presidency, you know, and the rise of the alt-right, you know, back in 2015, 2016, uh, really normalized, you know, uh, an anti-Semitic way of thinking across parts of the conservative movement, right? You know, Trump's regular scapegoating of, of, of globalists or George Soros, right? Kind of like normalized this, um, this way of speaking that kind of ascribed blame for all the phenomena that conservatives love to oppose onto like a shadowy cabal, right? Whether that's, that's liberal Jewish philanthropist George Soros, or, you know, or whether it's this scheming group of globalists or cultural Marxists or whatever, this way of, of thinking that, uh, that ascribed, you know, problems to, you know, a shadowy cabal, well, you know, moved mainstream and animated movements like, like QAnon throughout the course of the Trump presidency, that was that was disturbing in its own right, you know. But the anti-Semitism mostly remained coded, right? You know, they could get mm -hmm. away with plausible like deniability of saying, "Oh, we're not talking about you know Jews. We're talking about you know just this one Jew, George Soros." But really, he's a Nazi. Really, he's not Jewish anyway. This is what conservatives say about him, right? So, so you know, so they could claim plausible deniability. But what we're seeing now is more and more in cases like you know. Like Yay, the artist formerly known as Kanye West, are getting a platform, you know, to to promote open anti-Semitism, you know, or former President Trump himself, you know, who recently, you know, had a social media post that made the rounds where he told you know American Jews to quote get your act together before it's too late, which is like really a new kind of escalation that we haven't seen before. 
um, at least verbally. And so, yeah, and this tracks with, you know, the broader mainstreaming of white nationalism on the right. You know, during, yeah. the, during the Trump presidency, um, you know, right-wingers would get in trouble if they they promoted the the great replacement you know, conspiracy, right? That, that quote unquote, like real Americans are being, you know, quote unquote, replaced in our country by non-white immigrants and that, you know, a cabal of elites is to blame. You know, that stuff is the bread and butter of white nationalism. And of course, the white nationalists say that cabal is the Jews, right? But you know, during most of the Trump presidency, you would never see conservatives really saying that outright. But today you have Tucker Carlson, you know, who who just, just you know, flat out says on his his show that the Great Replacement isn't a conspiracy, it's a fact, right? So they're using that language. They're even using the term Great Replacement um, in a way that would have been unthinkable during the Trump presidency. Yeah, so it seems like the narrative you're providing here is that these, yeah, these narratives these logics have always been present in the thinking of the right wing, both from the extreme right to the, to the mainstream right. And that recently, you know, in the last like five, six, seven years, a lot of these dog whistles have a become more open. Uh, people are just using them a lot more. And even now some of the masks are coming off and people are actually just, just talking about Judaism and talking about Jewish people in an anti-Semitic way, just, just very blatantly and openly, like not even hiding behind terms like, like globalist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what's going on. And, you know, and I would caution that this is still, you know, in the beginning stages and we're not yeah. sure which way it's going to go. Right. You know, Ye's, you know, recent anti-Semitic statements were mostly like roundly criticized in conservative circles. Right. At the same time, you had uh, you know podcasters like Steven Crowder, who has a very large uh, platform, who took Ye's comments and said, well, it's it's bad that he's scapegoating an entire group of people. But on the other hand, we do need to talk about, I think he said, you know, godless liberals with, or, or secular humanists with Jewish sounding last names who are who are in the media, who are in the economy, right? So he's, so you see that, you know, even if someone like Ye kind of like races three steps ahead of the discourse and everyone condemns him, he, you know, he does open up space for other conservative you know, commentators, you know, to flirt with his ideas. Yeah, that's, um, that makes a whole lot of sense to me. And yeah, you know, even if the comments that Ye makes are condemned, uh, the, the, the fact that they're out there in the world and that people are hearing them and that some people are receptive to them or they think that, yeah, you know, maybe it's gone too far for them, but, but, but that they, they still think that there's some truth behind it. That's, it's terrifying. I mean, th this might actually be a good time for us to transition a little bit and talk about, um, about Ye's comments and uh, conservatives reaction to them more in depth. I know that in our discussion about what we were going to talk about before you you know, you wanted to say that the comments that Ye made themselves aren't this person individually aren't really the things that we should be focusing on, even though that's that's what the media narrative seems to be about. Could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely don't, you know, don't want to minimize the danger and the harm of the intervention that Ye you know, has made. And, and it's tricky when talking about him, you know, because it's obvious that there's some mental illness going on. But at the same yeah. time you don't want to reduce it all to mental illness. He's clearly a political actor who, who has been, um, you know, fully ensconced in, in Trump world for a while now. He said he, you know, he came out as a Trump supporter back in 2018, I believe he visited Trump 
he met with Trump during his presidency, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, but so, you know, Ye has been platforming you know, far right ideas for a long time. And of course, you know, before he went mask off with the anti Semitism, he did this stunt with Candace, you know, Owens at a Paris uh, fashion show where they wore a shirt that said White Lives Matter, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and White Lives Matter um, is a, a slogan that was actually like developed by white nationalists um, in 2020, you know, in reaction against the the George Floyd uprising, right? So he's you know he's clearly a political actor here, um, and yeah, just to summarize, over the last two months, um, he's made headlines by making increasingly brazen you know forays into outright anti-Semitism. Um, at this point, he's just kind of recycling a grab bag of tropes. He's saying that, you know, there's 300 Zionists who are controlling the world from government and the media and the economy. He's saying, you know, he's um, he's connecting his own personal life and his his custody battles and his um, know, his own troubles to to suppose a Jewish influence. So it's really a kind of sad to see him you know, kind of going, going further and further into conspiracy land, um, you know, in the public eye like this. But I think what gets lost if we, uh, you know, only focus on Ye and the real danger he poses is that there are are other actors here, right? Um, you know, there's Fox News host Tucker Carlson, who, who mm-hmm. gave Ye one of his biggest media platforms after the White Lives Matter stunt, who published a long interview with Ye, you know, trying to lend, you know, some legitimacy to his his embrace of White Lives Matter, and it and it was later, you know, revealed that Tucker had edited out the anti-Semitism in the 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 interview, you know, to make Ye seem you know more respectable. Um, and you know, it's also uh, very concerning that that one of America's leading white nationalists, in, you know, Nick Fuentes, who uh, who I've been monitoring for some time, um, is now seems to be Ye's right hand man. Um, we're still not sure exactly how Ye and Nick got linked up. It, it could have been through Milo you know, Yiannopoulos, another far right you know, provocateur who's um, who until recently was on the, the the Ye campaign. But you know, it seems like Ye is claiming that he's going to run a 2024 presidential campaign. And right now, America's really most prominent white nationalist is you know Ye's right hand man on that campaign, um, and that that has the potential to be an even more dangerous escalation, right? Because even though Ye is clearly unwell, and I don't think that Ye's comments are are widely uh, supported among, you know, broad, you know, broad swaths of the American population. I think, especially last week after Ye's outright embrace of Hitler, uh, you know, on the Alex, you know, Jones show when, you know, Ye w- was wearing a gimp mask and like waving around a net. He's clearly unwell, and most people can see that, and that that really uh, like damages like whatever credibility he might have had in some folks' eyes. Even still, he's one of the most, you know, famous influential recording artists of the last century. He has 32 million followers on on Twitter. And we have you know, Nick Fuentes, who literally has access to his Twitter account and who basically seems to be red-pilling Ye um, even even deeper on the Jewish question, right? Like in the recent Alex Jones interview, Ye continually you know, deferred to Fuentes for his expertise on anti-Semitism, quote-unquote expertise. And so, yeah, wow. uh, you know, basically white nationalists hope to use the Ye campaign as a platform 
you know, to spread their anti-Semitism further in American discourse, you know, and, uh, you know, so really with the Yay campaign, uh, also Yay's, you know, dinner with President Trump, in which Nick Fuentes also attended, um, we really see just how proximate these ideas are to the beating heart of conservatism, right? So it's really, on the one hand, it's important to be clear that yes, Ye is a one sense of rogue actor, and I don't think the conservatives are going to be taking him seriously anytime soon. On the other hand, you know, he's having dinner with the former president, you know, and he's um, his ideas really aren't that far afield of the conservative conversation as we might think. That is all extremely terrifying because um, you're right. You know, even if even if his particular perspective if these particular outbursts are condemned the logic is still there you know the the the, the platform is still there it's still out there some people are still going to get radicalized by this stuff um or some people are going to be more open about their pre-existing anti-semitism or they're going to get more virulent about their pre-existing anti-semitism i wanted to ask you about about the relationship between fuentes and yay and and i know that you said that like there's a lot of this that remains unclear you know maybe awaiting some some tell-all book 20 years from now or something. But mm-hmm. um, that was something that I was super confused about as well. And and this is actually related to something that I remember seeing you you having written. Um, I, I can't remember if it was a tweet or something like that about how Fuentes, especially after the Unite the Right rally, which sort of destroyed the original alt-right coalition uh, that, that arose in, you know, 2014, 2015, and into the... Uh, the first years of the Trump presidency that, you know, Fuentes sort of emerged from that as like, you know, somebody who says like, okay, well, we can repackage these openly fascist ideas as less openly fascist and, and be a little bit more palatable about it, you know, like talk about Christian nationalism and like, like try not to be as openly fascistic. Like how did somebody with that perspective and that strategy, like Fuentes end up in concert with somebody who is literally saying, I like Hitler. Uh, like, yeah. like, do you think this is a misstep? Do you, do you think it's a strategic maneuver? Like, what do you think is going on here? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of forces you know, at play, you know, like you're saying, you know, like in 2019, you know, Fuentes and his America first gripper movement, their, the, their strategy was to, to be more like the suit and tie, you know, quote unquote, you know, respectable you know, face of white nationalism, and to, to, you know, to position themselves. The the this is a largely Gen Z movement. Um, yeah. You know, and they wanted to position themselves as like we are the future of conservatism. We are just you know MAGA kids who want less less immigration and less LGBTQ you know influence in our society. Um, and by the way, we do have these opinions about Jews, but we're kind of keeping them on the DL. You know, and basically, I think that there was a time when the Grippers were more uh, effective at doing that. They. Um, they did these, you know, very, you know, targeted interventions of Turning Point USA, where they were very much concerned about you know, polishing their messaging to not appear too controversial. The the they courted politicians, um, you know. But I think, you know, basically what happened was one, you know, throughout twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, the rest of the conservative movement, you know, moved, you know, so far to the right that someone like Nick Fuentes. Uh, who built his career 
off of being edgy and saying things that other conservatives weren't willing to, you know, to say, he was running out of new things you know, <laughs> you know, to distinguish himself, right? He was so, he and others, in a sense, very much were at the right place at the right time. They were very effective in, in being part of Stop the Steal. And really, they were right there as the conservative movement has lurched even more rightwards. And now Tucker Carlson is basically, you know, saying things that Nick Fuentes and others were saying on their podcast a few years ago right so someone like nick um he needs you know to stay stay edgy right so he um he basically he sees his role as being on the far right flank of the conservative movement of trying to pull it further rightwards and i also think that he just kind of lost some influence over the years and even as he it's funny even as he did these high profile events like like his America First political, you know, action conference where he would bring Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene on stage, he was kind of cultivating this this appearance that that he was highly influential. Um, when when in some ways, in his base of viewers was shrinking, right, due to deplatforming. Um, yeah, you know, and so I think you know he was. He, you know, he basically went, you know, he basically lost all of his focus on optics and throughout 2021, 2022, you saw him, you know, veering further and f- further into like deranged incel territory. I mean, and of course he was always an ex- extreme figure, right? But, but he really was, you know, he was a, you know, saying things purely for shock value and losing any kind of strategic focus he might have had. And of course, earlier in 2022, when he had Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar uh, speaking at his AFPAC conference, he himself uh, made a joke about Hitler being a good thing, right? A quote unquote joke, right? He oh, said, yeah, I remember um, that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he, so he, yeah. So, so basically, you know, my, my thinking is, um, that that he's totally you know lost you know any strategy he may have had to, to you know to influence the conservative mainstream because you know thankfully the, the 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 case remains in American politics that praising Hitler is basically a dead end and no one is going to take you seriously you know of course you know because because in the American right has their own you know variant of neo fascism right they don't need yeah. to you know, to hearken back to the memory of Nazism, right? So, so, but at the same time, like Fuentes and his gripers, they're diminished, but there still is a little cult of personality around him. They remain convinced that that Kanye is somehow like seeding anti-Semitism, you know, further into American you know, society somehow by appearing on Infowars, you know, waving a net around and obviously looking deeply unwell. So I don't think that's that's true, but I think, you know, Fuentes at least projects, you know, to his followers that he is somehow shifting the culture by doing this. Yeah. So this is a, well, I'm a historian. Uh, and so in, in, in some ways, this is a history podcast. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk for a second about some precedent um, to to events like this. A previous time in U.S. history, when there has been a, a rise in open anti-Semitism, especially on the right wing, and what that looked like in the years after, you know, so we can maybe get some sense about what we can expect in the next couple of years. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know better than I do, but I think it's, you know, it's always a double-edged sword, you know, to draw, to, to draw historical parallels. Yeah. Um, here because we really are living in unprecedented times and there's a danger in thinking that the worst horrors of the past are going to be repeated again in exactly the same way um and i think 
with anti-Semitism specifically, yeah, you know, you can look back at at times like the 1920s and 1930s when there were you know fascist preachers on the on the streets and on the radio, the uh, like Father Coughlin and his his Christian Front, or you know like you know agitators like William Dudley Pelly and his in his silver shirts who were really like mobilizing. Um, uh, you know, groups of young Christian white men to you know, to hold anti-Semitic you know rallies at Madison Square Garden to you know to sometimes chant on the streets, right? And really, like we do see, you know, see the inheritors of that, you know, in groups like the Proud Boys and and Patriot Front and Nationalist Social Club that are these you know street thugs, you know, sometimes armed these vigilante groups who, you know, uh, attack pride events um, and attack BLM protesters. And, you know, so in some ways, when we look at the history of American anti-Semitism and fascism, a lot of those, you know, those radical right vigilante tactics are being deployed against, you know, other groups besides Jews, right? LGBTQ folks, you know, black folks, you know, protesters, even though, you know, Jews are certainly um, in the, you know, targeted uh, you know, as well, right? Um, with synagogue attacks, you know, just a few weeks ago, yeah. there was a neo-Nazi plot, you know, to attack a synagogue in New York that was, that was foiled, you know. So I also think about when I look at the Nick Fuentes and Ye alliance, it's a very strange thing, right, be on the surface, because and many people are commenting how can a white nationalist be you know, be pairing up with you know a black non Jewish American? Um, you know he believe in the supremacy of the white race. You know blah blah blah. And Nick Fuentes obviously you know holds very very vitriolic anti black views, right? Um, you know, but Nick Fuentes also has been adept at building a kind of multiracial coalition at times. To, you know, to advance his white nationalist agenda, um, and this isn't the first you know time in U.S. history that we've seen that, right? You know, George Lincoln Rockwell, you know, head of the American Nazi Party in the fifties and the sixties, he sought to reach out um, and to build alliances with the Nation of Islam, I, I believe, you know, a, a reactionary black nationalist you know group, and one of the the ways that you know that coalition held together was through through was through anti-Semitism yeah. as well as, you know, hardcore, you know, misogyny and anti-LGBTQ views. Um, so there is a precedent for that, you know, as well. Um, and of course, uh, the anti-Semitism that Fuentes and Ye both tap into is, uh, you know, has long roots in modern anti-Semitism, right? Scapegoating Jews as the masterminds behind um, LGBTQ acceptance, you know, you know, controlling the media um, and the government and the economy, right? All of these tropes, you know, have long histories, not to mention uh, in, over centuries in Christian in Europe, but especially in the modern era, they were the fuel, you know, behind you know, 20th century fascism and ethno-nationalism, and that legacy continues today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the the groups that I studied for my for my dissertation work uh, in in the right wing in Latin America, there's the right wing being united through anti-Semitism and and consequently through anti-leftism, you know, which is, which are always united in their minds. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that has often been a way that that alliances between groups or peoples that you might not have necessarily expected to like each other. Or yeah, the ex- the acceptance of people who aren't white into extreme right wing circles. You know, probably the country in Latin America that's the most comparable to the United States, Brazil. You know, their fascist organization had a lot of 
nine white people in it who were partly drawn, yeah, by anti-Semitism, uh, which in Brazil was also connected to anti-Masonic ideology. Uh, mm. I don't know if we still have that one in the United States. I think mm. I, I, I feel yeah. like I feel like the right wing has moved past that particular <laughs> one. Yeah, most have, but you can still find it on Telegram and Gab. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, they're they get people, are still, <laughs> especially QAnon circles. I mean, QAnon. Oh, that circles, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, they tap into all kinds of conspiracism. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, you know, any any type of conspiracy that's about like a secretive group of elites who are in fact controlling everything behind the scenes, that's anti-Semitic logic, but it's also the same logic behind like anti-Masonic type ideology. Yeah. They know that's, that's, that's yeah. part and parcel, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And it all bleeds together, especially in the minds of, you know, if you go to any QAnon forum, um, I mean, it's all just kind of a grab bag of tropes that they are just kind of uh, like recycled to fit different moments. Yeah. Sure. Well, Ben, the last thing I wanted to make sure that I asked you about was, um, so we've, we've been talking about these really disturbing recent trends. We've been talking about the rise of openly anti-Semitic rhetoric and also the increasing use of obvious anti-Semitic dog whistles that are operative in the right wing and mainstream conservatives in the United States today and also you know, just throughout the Western world in general. What are some things that folks can do when they encounter this kind of language either in their personal or political or professional lives? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really important to educate yourself on uh, the anti-Semitic, you know, language and the tropes as well as some of the dog whistles, right? You know, anti-Semitism, you know, can look different from some other oppressions that folks are used to considering, right? Because a lot of oppressions will tell the story of the inferiority of a target group, you know, but anti-Semitism, you know, paints a picture of, in of you know in a way you know it punches up at this cabal of like all all powerful Jews you know who who rule everything behind the scenes as you were saying and so I, I know some of that you know that logic can be unfamiliar to people especially if you're in a progressive space and you're used you know, to critiques of power you're used to critiques of 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 you know elites um you know you know just be on the lookout for you know, if people start naming anti-semitic tropes like talking about the Rothschilds or mm-hmm. or just you know I think there's a there's always a constant there's always a possibility that you know our analysis of the world and our critiques of things like capitalism or imperialism will you know might might shade into conspiracy theories uh, and so it helps to be you know concrete and vigilant and to educate yourself about the tropes and to avoid them you know and it's also you know i I see the most value in in social movements and trans and transforming um, inequality in our world, and I think it's important to include the fight against you know anti-Semitism in our progressive work. You know, to you know, to increasingly articulate a vision of a left that's fighting anti-Semitism alongside fighting anti-blackness, anti-LGBTQ bigotry, um, Islamophobia, uh, fighting racial capitalism, right? Anti-Semitism is, you know, a core part of the infrastructure that keeps all these other oppressions in place um, in our our vastly, you know, unequal and unjust world. And so including anti-Semitism in the fight, including Jews in your coalition spaces, recognizing the tropes, educating you yourself about them, you know, and, uh, you know, and, you know, really, really leaning into a united front, realizing that we're all in this, in it together. And, um, 
the white Christian, you know, nationalist agenda, the however you, you want to parse that, you know, ultimately is coming for all of us and we're stronger by fighting it together. Yeah, uh, that's extremely well said, Ben. Thank you. Thanks so very much for uh, talking with me today. It was really great to get your perspective on this and super useful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. All right, everyone, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. If you really liked it, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail. I'm at 15 Minutes of Fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H-I-S-T of the Right, and Fascism15. All right, thanks very much, and I'll talk to you again on Thursday.